How's it going, guys? Very quick message, four-pronged, on behalf of the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Number one, first and foremost, we would absolutely love to see as many of you as possible at our national demonstration this Saturday, the 13th of January, at 1pm in Dublin, starting at the Garden of Remembrance and finishing up at the Department of Foreign Affairs. Let's make this demonstration the biggest one yet. Number two, and as you've probably seen, South Africa have taken out a case against Israel at the International Courts of Justice, the ICJ, requesting interim measures to prevent Israel from committing genocide. We call on the Irish government to support the South African application before the first hearing in The Hague this coming Thursday, the 11th of January. As a state signatory, Ireland has an obligation to uphold the Genocide Convention. We supported the case taken by Ukraine against the Russian Federation at the ICJ in 2022. What's the difference this time, except perhaps the colour of the victim's skin? Number three, we call for two pieces of legislation. A, the Occupied Territories Bill. This bill would ban the import of produce from illegal settlements in occupied territories anywhere in the world. The bill has already passed both houses of the Oireachtas, but is continually blocked by the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's party, Fine Gael, on a number of spurious pretexts. And B, the Illegal Israeli Settlements Divestment Bill would ensure that Irish strategic investment funds are not invested in companies that the UN have identified as complicit in illegal Israeli settlements. And number four, join the BDS campaign, boycott, divestment and sanctions of Israel. Ireland played a leading role in the global campaign against racist South African apartheid. We can and must do so again. We did, after all, invent the boycott. The absolute horror in Gaza and the West Bank has gotten immeasurably worse. If you're sitting at home wondering what you can do to help, first things first is join us on Saturday for the march. Also, join your local solidarity campaign. They need you. And much more importantly, Palestine needs you now as never before. Gurmagwif. Hello everyone and welcome to PALCAST. Uh, today is uh, January 12 and uh, this is Yusuf Jamal speaking to you from Istanbul. It's 4pm here. I'm very delighted to be joined by my co-hosts uh, Helena Coben, the president of Just Wed uh, Educational, who's joining us from Washington DC, and our great Irish co-host Tony Groves, who's joining Producer. us from Dublin. The noisy producer. Come on. <laughs> oh, it's great to be back with you, Yusuf. How are you doing? Um, I'm trying to be okay. I'm very um, optimistic about the uh, genocide case brought by South Africa against Israel in the International uh, uh, Court of Justice in The Hague's. Uh, you know, we as Palestinians, we're very hopeful that we will finally trust international law. Yeah, well, keep uh, keep trusting, but it's not going to happen speedily if it happens at all. I mean, my take on this is that what's more likely to happen is that this case will raise political power globally to confront the U.S.-Israeli genocide. Um, so it's from 
my point of view, it's more important from its political point of view, geopolitics changing, helping to shift the global balance than it is in terms of, you know, as you know, the court has no enforcement mechanism. It's not going to send um, police officers over to Tel Aviv to round up the Israeli government, sadly. Can, yeah. can I can I make one point that I think is why it's really important if it does even in, even an interim finding could have economic I- impact because you don't who wants to trade with these people if this is the case and I mean I don't I don't mean derogatory say that these people but this is how economic sanctions and money is what really talks um, and there can be economic. Uh, who again? Like we've seen how how effective they can be in terms of shutting off the tap financially, and that is that is something that can bite. That is something that that at least the pressure can be brought. We've seen the success of you know McDonald's and Starbucks getting upset about uh, BDS working now. Imagine if we could if we could see that on on uh, on a geopolitical scale used that way. I I, I think there is. I, I I like to think that there's more can come from it than 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 just an interim judgment. Yeah, I think it's also important to remind listeners that in 2004, the International Court of Justice uh, deemed the Israeli wall built on Palestinian land, apartheid wall, or separation wall in the West Bank as illegal. So we have a history where the court condemned Israel. And I think South Africa was very brilliant yesterday when it connected what is happening, the genocide taking place in Gaza today to, to the Nakba, to 1948. And they they just told people it's not something that started on October 7. What do you think, Helena? Yeah, absolutely. I thought their application was very, very well pulled together. Um, and they did also mention um, the situation in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. And about your point about the 2004 judgment that the ICJ had had reached, they had ordered Israel to stop building the wall and to dismantle the wall that they had already built. And here we are 10, 20 years later, and like, you know, they've just continued with their building the wall, with their expansion of the settlements, and so on and so forth. So that is why, you know, the International Court of Justice is important, but it has no enforcement powers. Um, I think Tony's quite right that the uh, the economic um, implications of everything that's happening will prove to be a very powerful lever. And we've seen already that the Israeli economy has been hugely impacted, especially by the call-up of reservists from their, their industries and, their, and their, their jobs, but also by the international boycott and by international investors just very, very reluctant to invest in such an unstable country. So, you know, like the start-up nation, whatever they, they used to say, and huge amounts of Wall Street money going into Israeli high-tech, that's stopped. And investors are fleeing the country. And then lastly, on the economic boycott front, we have to mention, mention the Houthis, who I think the Houthi attacks on Israel-related shipping going through the Red Sea are a very robust form of BDS. And, you know, they are requiring shippers to to certify that they have no cargo um, destined for, for Israel. And shippers that have been prepared to do that have been allowed to go through. And the Houthis, of course, as we know, are precisely and explicitly linking 
their actions in the Red Sea to the need to get a ceasefire in Gaza. It, it's not just a random like, oh, we're pirates, we're going to attack your shipping, which is the way it's portrayed in the Western media. No, it's explicitly listed, linked to the protection of Palestinian lives in Gaza. Um, definitely, Helena. And I think this is a fair ask to, to, to call for. After 17 years of crippling siege in Gaza that claimed the lives of hundreds of people, hundreds of patients, many people don't know that, the slow death of Palestinians in Gaza over the years is, is not acceptable. And uh, one idea that also came to my mind when um, I reflected on the uh, you know the case brought by South Africa is the fact that we have two discourses, one coming from the U.S., one coming from Israel. Uh, the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony um, Blinken described the uh, uh, move by South Africa as meritless and distracting the word like distracting the word, define the word, the international community. Is it like, there are like more than 80 countries that supported the move by South Africa. And we have a country that claims to respect human rights that says this move is meritless. This is one thing. And, and I'm sure you, you will talk about this, Helena, being uh, in the US and being a US citizen. Uh, but also we have Israel, which, as South Africa described in, in, in its uh, case uh, in the ICJ, had a very clear intent of genocide on a political level, um, on, you know, like we have le leaders, Prime Minister himself, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli ministers such as Yoav Gallant, the leader of the army, uh, army people on the ground, Israeli forces, calling for genocide, inciting for genocide, and this is very clear. But to tell you and to show that it's really important what South Africa did, it's very symbolic, and I will touch on the symbolism uh, of, of the fact that it's South Africa, not any other country in the world that did so, because of its long history of fighting against apartheid. Um, and the fact that we also had an Irish judge, Tony, uh, but we will talk more about this. Uh, to, to, to go back to my second point, we had Netanyahu and the judges who defended Israel today in the ICJ saying Israel wanted to protect Palestinians in Gaza. And we it's not Israel's policy, governmental policy to depopulate Gaza and kick Palestinians out. This is like a huge shift. And they're very scared. You know, the international opinion like the global opinion public opinion is with palestine and they're very scared yeah i think you're right yusuf to to note the importance of south africa it being south africa that brought this case against israel i mean as a person of english heritage i have to recognize that palestinians south africans and and irish people were have all been you know m massively the victims of english settler colonialism so that that's probably why irish people by and large and south african people 
really get at a very deep level what is happening to the Palestinians with the ongoing attempt by the Israelis to enact their their fever dream of of settler colonialism over the whole of the land of Palestine. Another uh, reason that South Africa is is really important is because it's one of the founding members of the BRICS grouping, B-R-I-C-S, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So on January 1st, the BRICS expanded, actually um, brought in five new members. Four of them are big powers in West Asia, the Middle East. That is Saudi Arabia, Iran, UAE, and Egypt. So BRICS is suddenly a real presence in West Asia in a way that is very, very threatening to the American hegemony in in the region. So, you know, all of this is connected with the big shifts that are going on in global politics. And I I think if you look at the way the Americans have been trying to, like, launch dozens of attacks against the Houthis overnight in Yemen, it wasn't just one or two. It was a very broad attack against Houthi sites in Yemen. It reminded me once again of, of the, the British, French and Israeli aggression against Egypt in 1956. I mean, you know, when you live as long as I have, suddenly like everything seems to be coming around again. And what was it? Uh, first time it's a tragedy, the second time a farce. Um, was that Karl Marx, for goodness sake? That was, that was, I- yeah, it was Marx, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and here we are. So, you know, actually the Suez aggression of 1956 marked the end of the British Empire in West Asia. And mm-hmm. I think that what the what the United States is doing now looks set to be the same have the same effect on it, the American Empire. It is it is empire in decline. I had this conversation with John Schwartz from the Intercept recently because if you think about it, go back to Gulf War 2. Um, go back to the invasion of Iraq and the coalition of the willing. And now they can't build any coalition because people are leaving them, you know, they're, they're literally having to do solo runs with, with what's left of, and I hate to say it, um, the what's left of this dysfunctional Tory government in the UK across the water from me and uh, and, and U, the U, US acting effectively unilaterally. I do want to come back to the ICJ and say, the I, a, an expression of you know they always said how how impressive was someone asked me earlier today how impressive was South Africa's presentation I'm not a human rights lawyer I'm not I'm not a rights but I am in touch with lots of people and someone had said to me they, it was the A to Z of genocide and the A being Amalek all the way to the worst elements of Z of Zionism and I, <laughs> nice and I thought. It was absolutely step by step because they told you what they were going to do. Then they then they did what they were said. Then they did what they said they were going to do, and then they filmed themselves doing what they were going to do so they could put it on TikTok. So um, uh, and and having watched some of the Israeli counter narrative today, the counter narrative seems to have been, and I've actually put this up as a video where he they where one of their lawyers listed the crimes that they've done, but he said in in light of this is kind of sort of. You know, we did this, this bomb, that bomb, this, this, um, this, these incidents targeting schools, targeting hospitals, targeting tunnels, and he listed all of these things as if to say that they were all justified in the via the prism of October seventh. And I find that kind of that's that's 
that's an interesting way of doing it because it's you know you you reference Karl Marx. I'm going to go to Cicero when you have no uh, when you have no basis in in uh, of a defense. Attack the plaintiff. So they went immediately to everything is Hamas. You know all of these sites that we hit that we did tell you about that we did do that you're saying is genocide. They were all Hamas, and that's why it was justified. Yeah, I'd like to actually pick up on your point there, Tony. Um, sorry, Yusuf, we're just like taking over the conversation, but I know you'll come back in as soon as, as you, you feel we've said enough. But their attempt to link everything to the, the violations that were committed on October 7th is actually getting thinner and thinner and thinner because more and more information is coming out about the number of the casualties that were committed on October 7th that were committed by the Israeli military themselves and their use of what has been known as the Hannibal Doctrine, which means that um, when the Israeli, as I understand it, when the Israeli military feels that um, Hamas or any other opposition resistance group is going to be taking hostages, the Israeli military has orders, has permission and perhaps also orders to attack the hostage takers, even if it involves killing the potential hostages. And they did that. They've done that in Gaza a number of times during previous um conflicts in Gaza, but this time they did it massively in the areas around Gaza, which is what the Israelis call the Gaza envelope, which actually, you know, is, is a series of settlements, moshavs and, and kibbutzes that were set up to envelop Gaza. So when some of these people get taken hostage, the Israeli military came back with planes, helicopters, artillery and just bombed the hell out of everybody, including their own citizens. And that is now coming out more and more in the Israeli media. So this claim that, you know, Hamas killed 1,200 people on October 7th, some some of my friends over at the Brief podcast or, or Electronic Intifada are saying it's more like maybe 900 but, you know, hundreds were actually killed by the Israeli military themselves. And I think that's important because I, it, that is coming out inside Israel now. I don't want to minimize what happened. We don't want people. The loss of life is, is still is still grim. But you're right to point out that Israeli media, Israeli's top newspaper. And I forgive me, I think it was uh, I don't know how you pronounce it correctly. Yeah, yeah. And they and they they. It, they published a piece which said it was the Hannibal procedure. So yeah, so we're not, we're not. Uh, there's no conspiracy theory here. It's just simply re- uh, reportage of reportage within Israel itself. So yeah, sorry, um, Yusuf, go ahead. Yes, Tony, thank you, and thank you, Helena. Um, in fact, Yedot uh, Ahranot reported that dozens of cars um, that were used by the Hamas um, fighters to um, get into these settlements, never returned back to Gaza because they were bombed by Israel. And they were bombed with, you know, fighters inside, but also Israelis who were taken hostage by, by Hamas. Uh, and that's except, this is, you know, explains why we, the number of um, Israelis killed uh, on October 7 has dropped from 
1400 to 1200 eventually. Uh, Israel was able to identify the bodies of, of Israelis, you know, using DNA and the rest of people, 200 at least, were killed by Israel. Uh, and Israel, did, uh, for sure, you know, um, they were not killed by the Palestinians. And it took Israel some time to identify these these uh, bodies. But it's really interesting that um, Haaretz has spoken about this and now Yid'ot Ahranot which is more uh, right wing and it's it's very uh, symbolic and then telling um, Palestinian media outlets such as the Electronic Intifada um, have published you know evidence even by Israelis themselves early in time that it was the Israeli military that killed at least some Israelis on October 7 but again the international media uh, was not happy with this narrative. And in fact, um, some mainstream media outlets started reporting on websites that such as the Electronic Intifada, they, they were contacted, I think, by the Washington Post, if I'm not mistaken, or the New York Times. Uh, they were writing a story just to attack the Electronic Intifada because they dared to say that some Israelis, according to Israeli narratives, were killed by the Israeli military. It's, it's very um, interesting. Yeah, I have to say, actually, you know, I realize we've gotten a little bit away from the ICJ and we should go back there at some point soon and, and also the Houthi story. But just regarding the, di the discourse environment here in the United States, evidently there are massive um, conflicts inside every major newsroom in, in the corporate media here. And so you see that coming out when they will, for example, they published, um, the New York Times had published the article by the mayor of Gaza City, Yahya um, Saraj, which was an excellent article. Um, that was a couple of weeks ago. And today they have one by the mayor of Sederot in Israel telling about his experiences on October 7th. So they feel they have to like have this balancey thing going on. But in the course of that conflict in the newsroom, more and more excellent reporting is appearing, including, for example, in today's Washington Post, there is a long article about the hundreds, possibly thousands of men from Gaza and some women who've been taken into Israeli detention camps completely, you know, outside any legal procedure and have been massively mistreated as they try, as the Israelis presumably are trying to um, get information about Hamas in the various neighborhoods or just to intimidate Palestinians into becoming um, informers for them, you know, and We've seen all this in Israeli, like big public media, like Fauda and all these TV series that they've made over recent years, in which they are glorifying their own ability to intimidate captive Palestinians. And I think that's the same thing that we're seeing with these um, glory videos. I call it. Gl Glory, 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 you know, that the Israeli soldiers are, are posting on TikTok and other social media from Gaza, where they're kind of glorifying in their, in their violence, in their ability to, to just intimidate, like the humiliated prisoners and so on and so forth. And some people have asked, like, why do they do this? Because this is just building 
a case. It's like presenting a case to the International Criminal Court for these for these soldiers to be had, had up on on war crimes. But I think they do it for two reasons. I think they do it first of all for the same reason that ISIS used to, you know, take videos and distribute videos of public beheadings in northern Syria. It's like a, a way of just intimidating anybody. That's one thing. But the other thing is the Israeli soldiers are trying to prove to their public back home that they are achieving something in Gaza. You know, like we achieved this because the public in Israel is increasingly skeptical about the war in Gaza. And that, that is not just the hostage families, but others in Israel. So, you know, I think there's a lot going on politically inside Israel we want to keep our, our eyes on, um, but also keep our eyes on this, like, just the, the evidence of the war crimes and the genocide. Exactly, Helena. In fact, there was a Telegram channel. Um, I think it was run by the Israeli military with over 70,000 subscribers, mostly from Israel where the Israeli military shared videos from Gaza, mostly of uh, naked Palestinian captives who were humiliated and they were forced to take off their, their um, clothes um, and they stayed, you know, in, in the open air uh, for a while without any, you know, blankets or anything, just to please some, some people in Israel that were doing something in Gaza. But... In fact, I'm very thankful to, to the Israeli military and to some Israeli soldiers who shared their stupidity and crimes on TikTok. It's all over the place now. In fact, yesterday, uh, the um, defense team of South Africa used some of these videos as evidence against Israel. So we have a country that not only incites and commits uh, insights against genocide, uh, in Gaza and commits this uh, internationally prohibited crime against Palestinians there, but also provides us with evidence that they did that. And I, I think this is uh, just another level of, of being uh, arrogant. And, you know, the, the statements made by Israeli uh, politicians yesterday after the South Africa defense in the ICJ uh, speaks of this arrogance. They they do not see anyone, you know, criticizing them. They're free to do whatever they want. They want to kill Palestinians and record it and post it to social media. Uh, I also saw a horrifying video from my refugee camp in Nusayarat of a woman who said the Israeli army forced women to take off their clothes completely and they put their underwear in, in a hole and they burned their, their underwears in front of them and they forced them to continue walking naked it's it's uh uh on on twitter and it was published uh by a journalist friend of of mine so we have enough evidence against israel um thanks to israel's stupidity but also the palestinian journalists on on the ground who were able to document all these um crimes to go back to to south africa and the symbolism uh, and i want Tony to join in and talk about this symbolism, the fact that we also had an Irish judge. Hmm. Uh, as Palestinians, we have a long history, a shared history with Ireland. The PLO supported the IRA. I don't know what your thoughts on that, Tony, but <laughs> uh, we, we do have a shared history. Uh, you sent me a picture of an artist, uh, you know, painting 
uh, a wall in, in Derry, was it in Derry, that also includes poetry from Rifat Al-Ar'ir, If I Must Die, You Must Live to Tell My Story. Tell us more about this history and solidarity from Ireland on this particular case. In this particular case, it's, it's, it is fascinating because the backstory is um, it's one of those very basic things that happens in the household somewhere and it changes someone's entire life. The uh, the the lawyer in question, um, uh, Lena Nigrea, she she was just twelve years of age when she found a pamphlet that spoke about a young woman called Magella O'Hare who had been shot in the head by British paratroopers who tried to blame the IRA, and she was pretty pissed off and upset as a child herself realizing that this was going on uh, in in the, on the same island where she lived and in classic um how do i put this mammy style we're going to say irish mammy style for the, for the basis of this she she ran to her mother and um uh, and, and and said I've read about what happened to this little girl. This isn't right. What's going on? And her mother said, "Well, you do something about it." And now, uh, decades later, we find not only she do something about that, but she's also in the ICJ talking about that injustice everywhere, about the genocide that's ongoing in Gaza. And she's delivering what was one of the best um, sum- summaries of, of what was actually happening. And we were, it, and I'm going to say this as an Irish person, we were proud of her if we were upset about our own government not joining the case and not signing on with South Africa. So, you know, we go, democracy is supposed to mean the voice of the people. Um, our pe- our government currently don't speak for our for the for the people. Uh, and like w- when people are listening to this, there will be probably there may be tens of thousands of Irish people on the streets because there will be on Saturday. Um, you know, in in the, as part of a global rally for Gaza, but. You know, this is this is part of our shared history, and this is part of why that solidarity comes from. And it was absolute. It was absolutely the embodiment of it yesterday. Um, I I will point out though the a lot of people in Ireland uh, who are quick to praise what happened yesterday have been fairly quiet for the last ninety days. So it's nice to have you on board. Thank you and welcome to the and welcome to the show, folks. It's uh, it, you don't you don't uh, please please stay on board. Now that you're here, now that what is the phrase? Helen, do they say it doesn't matter when you get woke, just that you did, you know. So please stay with us. Um, and and uh, oh and 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 if I if I if you see me tomorrow in the streets of Dublin uh, at the protest, say hello because I'll be there. Um, no, but that that that's that's as, as good. Yusuf, a a typical story of how it could happen anywhere, um, and and it, it. But for for a twelve year old to be told by her mother, go and do something about it, and then to see her yesterday do so brilliantly, and then again to watch today's, um, I'm going to say farce. Uh, uh, you know, a a. The accusation is purely that anything you say about Israel is is libel now, and this was the and the implications of that. So, so that was it was it was dangerous, and and then one little quick final point on on um on the geopolitics of this. There was you were mentioning the fact that a lot of countries were on were had signed up. There was also I listened to a lot of Western media. And the funny thing is, is the racism was showing because they said no country, no significant countries have joined the uh, South Africa on that. And what they meant by that was no predominantly white countries is what they meant, really. 
This is, you know, absolutely um, racist and telling too, Tony. And um, I mean, there are over a hundred eighty um, countries who supported or voiced support um, for the uh, South Africa case against Israel, uh, including the Organization of Islamic Conference, which has over fifty um, six members, the uh, Arab League, and seventeen other countries from all over the world, from Latin America to the Middle East. Uh, we also have support from you know Spain and Belgium and prominent politicians there and Ireland. So that's our definition of the international community, not not the rest of the world. But this is um, a different issue. Uh, Helena, we've seen Blinken touring the the Middle East for for the past three months, so that a regional war doesn't break out. But what's happening on the ground, targeting Houthis by Britain and the U.S., seems to do the exact opposite. Like we are heading every day towards a regional war. Uh, we have more targeting in Lebanon. In fact, yesterday, two paramedics, Lebanese paramedics were killed. So more civilians are being killed. It's not only um, Hezbollah members. And now officially we have a coalition attacking the Houthis in Yemen. And the Houthis said they will retaliate. So are we heading towards a regional war? And is it really the intention of the U.S. not to have a regional war? Uh, great questions, Yusuf. Um, I don't pretend to be able to get into Anthony Blinken's head. <laughs> uh, and I, I just note parenthetically here that the um, I've for ever since October seventh, I have argued that Israel's own internal political military decision making is completely unhinged, deranged, and depraved. Um, you know that we know that inside. The Israeli um, war cabinet, they have shouting matches. They are completely at odds with each other. And then there's the broader cabinet, which contains all the ultra right wing people who want to rebuild the, uh, the settlements in Gaza and so on and so forth. So their decision making is very um, irrational, let us say. But what we've discovered here in Washington, D.C. over the past week is that the decision-making here is pretty irrational too, because you might recall that um, the defense secretary, Lloyd, Lloyd Austin, who is a very important figure in the military chain of command. I mean, it's not the president is not allowed to give orders to the military. The president has to give orders through the defense secretary, who then gives them to the military. And so, you know, for any significant military decision that that Biden might want to take, he has to go through the defense secretary and he should be getting regular consultations with the defense secretary in a situation like the one we have now when there is risk of war, there is actual conflict. You know, the U.S. has been been fighting um, the, the Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria, for example active military operations. And then, of course, everything that's going on in the Red Sea with the Houthis. So it turns out that for a whole week after Christmas, the defense secretary was in hospital, in the ICU, and didn't even bother to tell the president. And even more significant is that the president didn't even notice 
that he didn't have a defense secretary. So how was the president getting, you know, rational military advice during those days? It seems that clearly Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, had been out of the decision-making loop for quite some time before he went to the hospital because nobody even noticed his absence. So that is very concerning to me, that the, the military decisions are being made in a very irrational and I would even say illegal way here in this country. So that's one thing. Another, so you asked about the risk of a, a broader war. I would say there is always a risk. But until now, both across the uh, Lebanese-Israeli border, there is something of an understanding between Israel and Hezbollah not to escalate. I mean, they've kept this kind of conflict, this, this contest on a simmer, I would say, since October 7th. Um, and then the same really in the Red Sea bet between the US and the Houthis. But all of this is done through very indirect signaling and could explode at any moment into, into the much broader regional war that a lot of people are afraid of. So I think actually this uncertainty is used by the Israelis very, very deliberately. They kind of, if Blinken goes to them and says, you know, you really have to stop fighting or do less fighting or do less damaging fighting in Gaza. If Blinken goes and says that to them, they say, oh, you know, we'll do what we can, but hey, you really wouldn't want a broad regional war, would you? So why don't you just let us do what we're doing in Gaza and, and, you know, but but if you if you put too much pressure on us in Gaza, well, hey, you know things could really blow up at the regional level, and that would be really bad for American interests. I mean, I think they use this threat of a broader regional war in the same way that in many previous crises they have used the threat of nucle using nuclear weapons to say to the Isra to the Americans, hey, you've got to give us that shipment of you know massive numbers of of bombs and, and tanks and fighter planes and whatever, because you wouldn't want us to go and have to use, you know what, you know, that thing that we don't talk about in Dimona in the desert. So they use it as a form of blackmail, like typical, very typical mafia tactics. So your question, are we, are we seeing the risk of a broader nuclear war? It could happen at any moment. Wow. But I think um, they're trying to keep it under wraps for now. Yeah. But while, of, oh, to give them, to, sorry, to give them the chance to continue uh, their genocide in Gaza, because another thing aspect of this is when they talk about thinning out the the Israeli troops in Gaza, everybody really knows that means oh we'll have more troops on the Lebanese border. So it's 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 scary until the Americans put their foot down. Wow. You know, speaking of Blinken, when he was uh, serving as an advisor to then Vice President Joe Biden, he told a um, couple of people in a private meeting that I know and you know, I'm not going to mention their name, that the Gaza policy is a failed policy. And now his discourse has changed completely. And this is what happens to people once they get to power. Because of you know pressure they're placed under uh, by by um, the the Israeli lobby, but I, I want to conclude this conversation, Tony and Helena, by speaking about Israel's defense 
before the ICJ, uh, which took place today. And there are a lot of memes and videos and clips circulating around of people making fun of of Israel's defense um, of itself that it did not commit the crime of genocide in, in, in Gaza. Uh, in fact, one of the judges who defended Israel uh, said that someone reshuffled his papers. He couldn't find the evidence or the words to, to say, uh, Tony, you are you are an expert on, on, on social media by now. And what did you see? What, what are people talking about? Um, I don't want to be too cheap, but people are talking about the... the the shoddiness of the presentation. There was obviously an incident where one one of the one of the gentlemen who was defending Israel couldn't he, he started reading from a page and realized he'd skipped a page and it did look it did look a bit kind of um poor. And it is easy to, to meme these things. Do I think that that's gonna um you know the the cheap giggles we can get from that. Do, do I think that that's gonna change much in terms of an interim judgment? No. Um I do think what was interesting as I said uh was the more so how they outlined their case was interesting. It was almost an acceptance of we've done all of this and you calling but you it doesn't reach the bar for <laughs> the genocide convention. And I, I'm sorry, to, I can't keep the laughter out of my voice because um, it clearly does. It clearly does. And these were the same people and some of the people who, who sit in judgment who only in the last few weeks, there was one, I don't know if you saw this, Yusuf, there was one organization, and forgive me, the name escapes me, who the Israeli defense quoted about, you know, let's not play around here with genocide. And that organization has tweeted we call this the case in, in Israel a genocide two weeks ago. <laughs> you know, it's no good when you're calling. It's <laughs> not great to be calling. It's like it would be really realistically saying that, you know, calling uh, a guy who's who's brandishing an axe and uh, at, at, at people and asking him to to, qual- to ask about the quality of the axe. They they have admitted it. They've been brand- they've been waving the axe and, and chasing people with it. But the other ugly thing is and I and I don't I don't want to see this appear too much is the blood libel stuff is starting to to feature as well. And because Israel has gone down the the line of anything you say about us is libelous. I think actually to go back to Haaretz have have summed it up and said, Israel's big mouths have caused all the trouble for Israel because they told us what what they were going to do. And I think that's a good summary. Never mind what what, what I think in Dublin. If if Haaretz are reporting that it's their own big mouths that have got them into trouble, well, then we should listen to that, I think. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, Tony and, and Helena, for today's conversation. And Mike, my words, I think Israel will never be the same after this ICJ, um, you know, case brought by South Africa, accusing it of genocide in, in Gaza. Israel is not the same after October 7, but it will also never be the same Um after January um, 11. Uh, thanks to South Africa, it's very symbolic. And, you know, as Palestinians, we have strong ties and feelings towards South Africa. Um, the boycott movement there, the anti-apartheid movement there, Nelson Mandela, and I was watching this short clip of Abu Ali Shaheen, uh, who uh, Helena knows of, of the PLO. He said, the PLO used to pay the family of Nelson Mandela when he was in prison a monthly salary. So the connection is 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 very strong and it's uh, very uh, clear to, to, to everyone. Um, 
I will stop here. I'm ranting now. Well, no, just, but just we're just, very thankful. Can, can we add? Very, can, very thankful. Can we add? Yeah, can we add? Can we add the quote where Mandela said, "We know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of Palestinians." Yes, absolutely. And you know, we've seen also a vigil uh, next to the uh, monument of uh, Nelson Mandela in Ramallah after uh, you know the uh, invocation of of the genocide. Uh, against Israel by South Africa, so it's it's very um, you know telling and important and symbolic at the same time. Um, one last reminder: uh, I would like to uh, thank our uh, co-sponsors, the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Malaya, and also uh, forever thankful to to the Eco Chamber uh, podcast for for helping us with this and the. Uh, uh, just with educational um, organization in, in Washington, D.C. for making uh, this podcast uh, possible. Thank you very much and see you next week.